0: My name is Vashi Nedimanski. I'm a film editor, and my job on this show was to be the uh, workflow consultant and editorial consultant. Uh, I've, cut, I've just started cutting my tenth feature film on Premiere Pro, so I've been able to work on other films along the way, such as Gone Girl and now Deadpool, to bring my experience and to express how Premiere Pro can work at the highest levels, and especially with people that haven't used it before. Um, so I get brought in, I get hired to teach and train and just share experiences. And I think it's cool because I don't work for Adobe, I'm an editor speaking to other editors, and hopefully they're not threatened and they can ask questions and be honest because at the end of the day we want the, the, the NLE that we're using to just work for us and be efficient so we can actually be creative. And I think that's really important. You shouldn't be fighting the machine, it should be helping you along the way. So what I'd like to do first is introduce everyone. Um, to my right here is first assistant editor Matt Carson. How's it going, guys? And <laughs> Matt, Matt was there from the very beginning, and believe it or not, he's still making adjustments on certain stuff. The DVD, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, the DVD will be will be out May 10th, and the stuff that you'll see here will be on there. But he's still working, and that's got to be 10 months, 11 months. How's it yeah, been since
1: last May? So, so keep it
0: going. So keep it going. <laughs> All right, so. As the assistant editor, that, that was your role. we'll get back to you, but I want to introduce everyone. Um, the post supervisor um, well, we didn't have the other assistants here, but we can mention them later. So Joan Bierman is our post supervisor, and we'd, we'd like to give her a round of applause. She, they're basically the ringleader of the entire post-production room, and also one of the most calm people I've ever met. I don't know how those two go hand in hand because it was sheer chaos a lot of the time. Um, but, Joan, would you like to explain what your role is uh, you know, as the post supervisor, what that entails roughly, briefly? Sure.
2: I um, manage the post budget and the post schedule so that uh, we we get the film in the theaters on time, on schedule. That's on important, budget. right? Yeah. Okay, because once
0: I set that date, it's that's, not you is it flexible,
2: do it. that, that date? I've, <laughs> n- I've rarely seen it <laughs> flexible. I have seen it flexible, but that's rare.
0: Okay, yeah. excellent. And on the far end, least but certainly not last, the uh, VFX supervisor, Jonathan, what? Jonathan Rothbart. <laughs> so I heard someone, I'm like, what's going on? I'm, I'm, it's terrible. But Jonathan Rothbart here, VFX supervisor for Deadpool. <laughs> yeah. And for everyone that either knows or doesn't know, what was, what was your job entail and just the broad strokes? Because we don't know the, the, who's in the room, so I want to speak to everyone.
3: Uh, <laughs> broad strokes, we make everything that can't be made, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Uh, in visual effects, and our job is to uh, help, uh, help Tim, the director, visualize the film before we start shooting and then uh, make it a reality afterwards, whatever we couldn't get in camera. And uh, we also help design creatures and, and ships and explosions, and it's a lot of fun. That's <laughs> awesome. be a kid.
0: Now, with your role in this, when did you start on Deadpool?
3: Uh, I started in Deadpool, I think it was October. Um, I started... What um, year, though? Uh, <laughs> two years ago now? Yeah, like, yes, two years ago now. Um, yeah, I came on really early when it was uh, just a couple of us on board. And uh, we were really just still trying to figure out who was going to help us f- make the film and, uh, and also design what it was going to look like, because we still hadn't had all that worked out yet either. Um, but that's, that's a big fun part of making movies, so it was cool.
0: So that's, yeah, that's a long commitment. Is that normal for a film that you work on? And yeah. wouldn't you tell, or if you wouldn't mind telling us, a little bit about your past as a post supervisor is that you, did you start at ILM initially? Or uh, where did you yeah, start? Yeah. Um, this is really interesting. Like, you, you sh- should be asking him questions after this. It's insane. Yeah. So, but tell us a little bit about your history. All right, uh, to answer your
3: question, the first one, the, yes, yeah, sir. we're on for about 18 months to two years on wow. a movie, except for Matt, who seems to be on forever. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, and then I started working in 1995 at ILM. I started at ILM. I was in computer gaming before that, and I started in the art department there, uh, doing uh, what at the time we called animatics, which is now Previs for people who know it. Uh, and I, I worked out of the art department. And then after about a year or so, uh, this guy named John Knoll came uh, uh, came to a group of us and suggested that we. Do um, visual effects on Macintosh computers and work within ILM to create visual effects in this small little boutique group. So I joined that group uh, along with uh, two other guys, uh, Stu Mashwitz, because he's here, and uh, Matt Hendershot, <laughs> he goes too. And uh, and then um, and then we so we worked there on a number of films: uh, Star Wars, Men in Black, Star Trek. And then after about five years, uh, I left ILM and started my own company called The Orphanage, doing visual effects out of San Francisco for about 10 years at The Orphanage. So we did that for 10 years, uh, which was an amazing experience, um, going through a lot of highs and lows of the industry. And and then we closed down in 2010, and I've uh, since then been working for the studios as a show supervisor overseeing the show in its entirety.
0: And that's what I do. That's great. Thank you. Um, Back to Joan. Quick question for you. You're you're on a bit of a streak right now as a post supervisor. (laughs) And uh, could you share with the audience maybe the the names of your last three or four films that you've worked on?
2: Okay, going backwards. So Deadpool, Spy, what was in between? (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That is amazing. It's too long at that point. (laughs) Wow. Um, The Heat, Chronicle. I did a animated feature in between. Um. That's too <laughs> many. I know, that's, I know how you busy go. you are, so
0: I understand. But that's a, it's a great run. Like you, you must feel good about. Yourself.
2: Oh, the other woman. I'm sorry, the, the other one. woman. Okay. So yeah, and yeah, they've all had number one weekends. So that's so
0: that's pretty that's gotta special. be rare to say the least. <laughs> uh-huh. So congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. And Matt, who's still obviously working um, on <laughs> Deadpool, <laughs> it, that's insane. But what I wanted to ask you was, um, when I came in, the first, my first job was for the first three weeks to basically train all the editors and the whole team on how to use Adobe. Um, so where were you guys coming from as a, as a unit? You guys were using Avid. You were experienced with Avid, and it's known for its stability. It's known for its, its sharing of projects and everything. Were you trepidatious stepping into the Adobe Premiere world, and, and how, did, how did you enter... As a, as a team into that world.
1: I mean, going into it, obviously a new platform. You know, there's there going to be limitations. You're going to have issues, and, and you got to keep an open mind with that. Um, but you know, the other assistants and I, we all came in. Vashi was a great teacher in the beginning. You know, showing us how we needed to go ahead and work and what the best workflow would be. And we ended up setting up a, a pretty straightforward workflow. You know, we knew that the that Adobe not having a multi uh, a user-friendly project sharing and everything. We know we needed to make a, a workflow that would essentially allow everyone to be able to go ahead and navigate easily and be able to find everything that, that they needed to find. So we ended up uh, setting up uh, basically, how you would say, a, a master project or a master folder. And inside that master folder, we went ahead and created subfolders, you know, current reels, scene bins and whatnot. This, this basically allowed us to go ahead and navigate and we would be able to store all of our premiere projects in those folders and made it to where that the editor or the assistants, anyone, would be able to find stuff easily. Now, the, the catch with that, though, was that you know not being able to go ahead and share one project you run the issue of multiple editors or assistants using the same project at once, so we needed to kind of devise a situation where we wanted to keep the lock bin functionality much like what you would experience in Avid, and we created X user folders uh, at the bottom of the the master folder, and any time that anyone wanted to go ahead and use a certain project or a, a scene bin, it was their responsibility to go ahead and take that and bring that down into the x user folder and then their responsibility to go ahead and put it back.
0: Okay. So basically like to clarify cuz <laughs> not to clarify but the comparison is in premiere you can only have one project open mm-hmm. so what we created was the sequence the sequence in premiere was basically the equivalent of how you deal with a bin in avid. Is that right. kind of fair? Mm-hmm. Because you could go into another person's project and take their sequence and bring it into your project, make any changes you want and then they would take it back. It's a non-destructive process. I can't mess with the original files in someone else's project. I make a copy in my project. So that sequence is acting as as a bin mm-hmm. and by giving it a name like, you know, the Julian lead editor or whoever you want, we always know that his latest cuts are in that folder. And that's critical because organization in the edit room and it's communication
1: the key for editorial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
0: without that, you know, then you're, you're screwed. And then if all of a sudden Julian's cutting something and it's all a previous cut, mm-hmm. or the effects aren't up to date, then you know stuff falls apart, deadlines aren't met, people get fired, people Joan cry. Gets <laughs> yeah. Joan, yeah, gets, Joan gets mad. Yeah, Joan gets mad. she never does, <laughs> from what I've heard, but I know you have it in you. You can go dark, can't you? All right, good. Um, so that was the process, how we set that up. Mm-hmm. Was there um, any other, like, Were there any positive things right off the bat? Uh, One quick story, sorry, before I ask you a question. (laughs) How terrible, I'm a horrible host. But uh, the first, I was hired for three weeks initially to go and teach everyone. And I assume that editors And especially at this level, everyone's really intelligent. Everyone's really quick. They pick up stuff. I knew it wasn't going to be three weeks of where is this key or what does that do. It was a matter of setting up their workflows, (laughs) setting up their two panel uh, monitors to a comfortable place where it would approximate what they were used to, match their keyboard shortcuts to what they used already, and try and eliminate the machine so you can just edit and not think. So that was my job. And funny enough, on the first day with Julian Clark, the lead editor, by the end of the day, he was like, screw it. Let me just cut some scenes. Let me just cut. And by the end of the day, he'd already cut scenes, you know, his first day at Premiere Pro. So I mean, I think that's obviously a testament to Julian and his abilities and also to accommodating the editor with a system that they can just feel comfortable at. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the key things that I think is really powerful about Premiere Pro is its flexibility and its uh, expandability that way. So, it's an easy
1: interface, too, which being able to navigate everything inside is, is, is simple. So, I mean, and, and having him as a, as a teacher, then uh, is perfect.
0: <laughs> That's very kind of me. appreciate <laughs> that. Um, and <clears throat> with, we'll get back to you in a minute. So I'd like to, Jonathan, with, with you, the interaction between After Effects and Premiere Pro using Dynamic Link and other methods, um, what was your experience with that, and how did you use either program or both in your workflow and your team's workflow underneath you? Um, yeah, we used, a,
3: we used a bit. I, I leaned on, um, I would say, Photoshop more than any other tool in the, in the Adobe Suite while we were working on visual effects, just because the way I like to work is uh, taking a lot of frames and doing paint overs and recolorings and, and uh, marking up any changes, uh, much to my yeah. supervisors' dismay, the other facilities. But, um, but yeah, so I, w- I would do a lot of that. But then uh, we would have to a lot of times go, uh, we would jump into uh, After Effects and kind of previs out uh, a scene just to get the timings right and uh, show scale of an explosion or where we wanted uh, to have one of our characters move, something like that. Um, so we do a lot of that type of work in After Effects. Uh, another thing we did was um, we went and there's this there's montage sequence in the film that, where he's being tortured uh, and uh, we actually used um, Tool called Magic Bullet and, and designed out the look of it, and then we're able to hand that off to one of the, um, the vendors, and they uh, redid that look. Uh in whatever package they were using. But right. uh, we would design it that way. And then um, what was nice was I could go, it, it, when you're dealing a lot with animation, and in visual effects there's there's timing differences. As a new animation comes in, timings can change. So I would a lot of times take that animation into Premiere, test out the timings and the, the, the edit, and then I would eventually bring that down to our VFX editor and work on that in the actual cut. But it gave me an opportunity to kind of be your own little visual effects filmmaking wrecking crew with those tool, tools and just be able to move between them and, and kind of get anything you want done without having to go and ask different departments or different people to help you out while you're doing it.
0: Is that normal for you to, to jump into the NLE and, and time shots and see how it's playing within the cut or? Uh, yeah, you know, that's,
3: that's part of it. When you're dealing with animation a lot, you really, it, timing and edit is, is everything. And um, you know, it's, it, it's hard because what we'll do is a lot of times I'll get three different takes of an animation. And before sending that one of those off to editorial, try and figure out which one's going to play out the best before uh, putting it up to to the, the adults.
0: Yeah.
3: So uh, <laughs> so yeah, try to we try to get it right first before we uh, we throw it out there.
0: And then, how many total VFX shots were in Deadpool? Uh, we Both. had just
3: shy of fifteen hundred effect shots in that's the movie. The, yeah, it was it was a lot more than we thought we were going to
0: have. And yeah, I bet. <laughs> and how many vendors or how many other people outside that, that under your purview that were helping to we had, crank this out
3: we had 10 total mm-hmm. um, seven of them we well six of them we initially had planned on having on the film um, and then we actually picked up uh wetta a little later because um, we animated all of the facial animation of deadpool when he's in his costume so uh they came on and did all the face animation and then we added a few more at the end just to kind of make that final push and, and get us through. Plus we had an
0: in-house group working as well. Cool, cool. Yeah. Um, and then Joan, um, because you're basically in charge of all of post-production, especially f- during the edit tutorial session and, and everything else, were you, did you have qualms about like, bringing in After Effects and, and Premiere Pro? But I think After Effects is used on, on your other shows. But changing over to Adobe, even though you knew you were going to have some support from them and like, I was going to be there. What were your initial thoughts, and how did you feel over the whole run of the show? Like, take us through, if you could, a little arc of how you felt. Because it must so, have been, I would have been scared. Yeah. yeah,
2: what was my fear?
0: Yeah, what was your fear? And then how did it all turn out? In, okay.
2: in, well, I'll fast forward. Yeah. It turned out great. <laughs> so, um, Nailed it. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah it, it, was, it was a little tough. I had never worked on an Adobe project before. Um, I was working with a first-time director. Um, the mandate was to use Adobe Premiere and um, to set up editorial at the director's facility in Culver City. And they have an open, an open working space. Yep. So the first thing we had to do was build editorial rooms, which was um, fun. And, um, and then I had to learn everything I could about Adobe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, figure out the team that would actually be excited about it or, yeah, let's do this. So, um, so first it's the editor and then the assistants and going from there. And, and visual effects editor also is yeah. key. And, um, uh, you know, so that's all. You've got the whole setup. You, you've done as much research as you know that you can and then you're given this package, and I knew that we had you, so I felt very comfortable about getting the editors up to speed. but what what we don't realize is what little roadblocks and challenges we're going to come up against, so yeah, you never do bugs um, things you know operations, workflow we're obviously a different film than Gone Girl was, so um, we we presented different challenges for adobe to work on basically yeah. if you want to look at it like that they were our challenges because we had to get the film done but they you know we passed them on to adobe to help us solve whatever we needed to And get what through.
0: kind of support did they give you like from them from their side because I was teaching technical aspects and stuff but did they give other support to the production oh,
2: Absolutely okay. we had um, we had Frequent um, email conversations and, and visits from um, their engineering team, mm-hmm. and a constant co- you know, communication. So, yeah.
0: So that's important because yeah. um, when I was on Gone Girl, and I might have said it before, but they were coming from a Final Cut 7 working platform where they had cut the previous three films. And using Premiere Pro, they had their own growing pains, and they came up with a list of about 200 requests for Premiere Pro to make it better, coming from Fincher and his editors. Um, those implementation of those 200 effects basically ended up in the version that we were cutting on, which was version 9 something, which everyone now has access to that's out in the world. So it's nice to be able to get feedback from filmmakers coming from a different platform that you probably wouldn't think about yourself, and it, they're almost like bonuses. You're like, wow, I didn't even know that was an option. And I know the guys, the whole team was finding things in Premiere that they didn't know um, was there, and they, you know. Like, glammed onto it and said, Oh, this is great. I really like this. Mm -hmm. Um, What's great about this team, that they're an Avid team across the board, the future versions of Premiere Pro will have all the acquired knowledge that they contributed in terms of special things that Avid does or things that they were comfortable with that aren't in Premiere. So, I'm looking forward to it as an editor. I'm on a film right now that just started that, you know, any improvements are always wonderful. So, I'm looking forward to see what happens down the road with everything that you guys did in the trenches to try and break it and then, you know, or, you know, do it better. And we should be able to see that, you know, yeah, results. We had, we had
1: a long laundry list of uh, the, what things we needed implemented. And, and we got a, you know, we got a few. And, and I know that they're still working on a lot of them to try and get implemented for the next versions that come out. Um,
0: and, uh, but that's good. I mean, I think that open communication, like mm-hmm. not only is communication important in the editorial bay and, and between the post-production team, but also between the people that are providing the services and products that you're using every day. Mm-hmm. And if you can't get a hold of someone or they don't care, then, that's not fun, you know. That's that, that it, it yeah. would that's, basically
2: not have been possible, right? If they didn't care, if they weren't invested, if we, if if there was just one person not invested, yeah. It and it was, broke a,
1: down. it was a quick response. And on something that wasn't too difficult to get to us, you know, they, it was a quick turnaround in the sense for fixes. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, one of the things we needed was uh, sub-sequencing, and, and they were able to get that to us. Uh, I think our first was being able to go ahead and get one master project, which yeah. that is yeah. that is to come still. That's the ultimate goal, uh, yeah, I know, do.
0: absolutely. So. And just um, finish up with the After Effects, you, Matt, probably had one of the most difficult jobs in terms of he's keeping that master project that has everyone's pieces and parts under his, like, view, is purview, and, and like locking it down. He decides to give out the pieces that needed to the editors. If Julian's cutting something, he's not going to give Julian the whole project. He's going to give him a scene or two that's prepped that Julian can work on. And all gets returned back to his master project. So that's a, you know interesting way of doing it. Um, what Matt also had to do a lot of was, um, just like in Fincher's films, they're, tell us about the stabilization, the split screens, the time ramps, all that kind the, of stuff, speed ramps.
1: We, you know, I mean, and how much
0: did you do involved in that?
1: As far as uh, me myself going and doing a lot of the split screens, uh, <laughs> Neil went ahead and the VFX editor. He went ahead and, and did a lot of the split screens, a lot of the green screen work and, and temp work and stuff. You know, in the beginning, we used dynamic linking as much as we could, but with the complexity of our timelines, we were getting some crashing in the beginning. So we kind of went more for the traditional way of of outputting quick times and bringing those quick times into After Effects.
0: Mm-hmm. So great. real, real fast. Thank you. Um, That scene with TJ Miller where he's saying all those things. I got a chance, I think most of us saw this. He did like a 10 minute run where it's just one after another, after another, after another. Camera's rolling, Tim's like, go again, try something else, go like this. I don't think I've ever heard fucking funnier shit in my life. <laughs> it was a nonstop, like, onslaught, tidal wave of profanity, vegetables, and other combinations that was uh, it was genius. You guys saw that, I'm sure.
1: Oh, between Ryan and TJ, I mean, the ad-libbing yeah. and the riff, yeah, yeah. it was just...
0: <laughs> That's by itself. And so I think the humor of this, you know, in talking in generality, like the humor offsets the goriness and everything else and opens it up to such a different place. The freedom that they had to go with it was a huge risk, obviously, but I, I'm, I'm proud of the results. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I, I haven't seen a movie like that in a long time, to say the least. And it just felt really open and, and fun. And superheroes, movies, God forbid, can't they be fun? Like, <laughs> sorry, just want to have some fun. But um, we're going to run another video right now. I'm going to narrate it. I uh, cut together some of the stuff. This is some of the stuff that um, has not been released before. Uh, there's no audio. I'm just going to talk because we literally got it so recently that we didn't have all the pieces and parts. So I'm just going to talk. And I also wanted to quickly discuss my mindset as you're watching it of what the whole post-production thing was. So no questions right now. You guys are off the hook for a second. But if we can run the second video real fast, I'll just talk through it. Um, So basically my thoughts on this when I was making the workflow was collaborate, navigate, and update. By collaborate, obviously everyone has to work together. That's a normal thing. Um, But it has to be extra tight in terms of everyone's new to this process. Navigate, everything has to be found very easily. You have to know where everything lives and you have to do it very quickly. Update, meaning with the VFX, with almost 1,500 shots, you have to keep updating the, the VFX and that's a priority. Um, so I created this template that is free if you go to, if you just Google you know, Deadpool project templates, for Premiere Pro if you have, if you have it. Um, it's what I gave them as a starting point. Um, Matt and I sat when we first started the process and had to figure out how many <laughs> Pixels and the aspect ratios and numbers that <laughs> no one ever knows about. So we kept notes of this. I just took a photo because it was just getting crazy. Here are the three different ways that we use the footage. The top is what we acquired it at. The second is what the dailies it came in at. The bottom is what we were editing at. Um, so those are the three sizes that we were dealing with. And again, those are like weird numbers, you know? Uh, this was the biggest thing, again, with Matt. Like editing begins with organization. Between our markers, okay. between our bins and our sequences, and the sharing of projects using the media browser, Without those three elements, it just couldn't have worked. Here's some footage now. Um, I'll be able to show you and to talk you through. I recorded this last night on my laptop, so there's some shitty playback at one point, so don't, don't curse the TV screen or whatever. <laughs> so on the bottom here is the actual timeline. It's about a one and a half 1⁄2-minute sequence from the film. Um, at the top level, we have the final film. I turn that layer off so you see it without color correction. I go down a little bit further. This was actually a dead layer. It didn't do anything, but I had to click it anyways. And then on the bottom, we have V1 and V2. V2 has the effects on it, so when I turn it off, you see the actual raw footage that we shot. This was shot in Vancouver, and so you see the stadium behind it. That's been replaced. We're setting it in current, you know, future Detroit. And as we scroll through, we had to keep everything vertical, so I'm just turning stuff back on and off, but we will have more stuff coming up. But it was just really cool to see how you stack it, how you replace it, so everyone knows where everything is. Um, So we go back to the main thing, and What's really cool is that's the final image, and if you go back to the animatics, this was created before anything happened. This is, uh, oh, sorry, here's a timeline. So this is a 90-second piece of the film, and it's just showing you, I don't know, there's maybe 100 cuts, 120 cuts in there. The audio's been disabled, but just to give you a look at what the editors are creating and how sloppy or clean it can be. This animation here is the actual first animation before they actually shot anything. So this was Tim Miller and his team saying, let's pre-cut the movie so when we do shoot it, we know exactly what pieces and parts we need. And as you can tell, it's not accidental, it's not arbitrary, it's as detailed as you can imagine. And it literally, at this early stage before shooting, already matches the final imagery, which we'll see a representation of in a minute. So you can imagine the confidence and the artistic talents that they have to be able to create this, which just by watching it, I'm sure you could say, yeah, that's the movie. So this allows all the divisions and all the, the team members to be on the same page when they're asked, what do we need to do? What are we trying to create? Again, it goes back to communication. As long as everyone's on the same page, you can create the final product that everyone is, is trying to achieve. So this is a great representation. Here's just a quick quick uh, couple of seconds from the actual film, but it was playing back herky-jerky because my computer sucks <laughs> and bad RAM or something. So, but you know what I mean. It's like, if you know it and you watch it for yourself, you're literally watching the same thing. It's just a lot jazzier. Um, another thing that Matt did that was really important was using multi-cameras because it's an action film. Because you want to capture everything, you sometimes only have one chance at it. We were running three cameras at some times, you know, but at least two cameras most of the time. And in Premiere, you can just click, whatever window you click on, the yellow line goes around it. That's what's active in the timeline. So the editor has the freedom. Like, any, like anywhere else, to decide what goes on, what goes off, which, which part of the shot or which angle he wants, and you can do that instantaneously. Um, so that was you know, some of the stuff that Matt has to create. He has to link those three cameras in the audio so it's available for the editor. Um, and lastly, I'm trying to remember what I did. I showed something. It was late when I was making this last night. Oh, May 10th, you can go buy the <laughs> Blu-ray, and it has all the behind-the-scenes and um, all the extras that you saw little pieces and snippets of here, and there'll be a little bit more later. So if you can bring up the house lights, we'll keep going. So thank you for entertaining me. I can't even talk right now. <laughs> Losing it. Dude, It's too much talking. I never talk that much. All right, I'm going to my notes. Um, I'd go back to Jonathan. I think, I don't know how much time we have, but I think it'd be best to be, you brought some beautiful before and after mm-hmm. VFX shots. Yeah. Can you I want to prep us for me. that? Are they, where are I'm they? Like, are they yeah, in the yeah. pocket? Yeah. You got a flash drive? Let's fire it up. Um, tell me. Uh, don't tell Fox. <laughs> don't tell Fox. <laughs> Everyone's going to leave with a flash drive full of top secret yeah. footage today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about, just before we show the clip, it's, it's really nice. It's really cool. Were you happy with everything, how it turned out? Like you're dealing with so many people. How do you, how do you manage all that? Like how do you, as a top guy in control that, how do you do that?
3: Um, you know it's it's controlled chaos yeah you know, it's much much like the filmmaking process in general um, and you're always I think I think when doing visual effects you have to start from a base um, conceptual look of and, and an idea of how you're gonna address a certain effect or a character or whatever and then and then as you go through the implementa- implementation of that it, it takes on new avenues and, and kind of uh, organically finds itself <clears throat> but uh, you know, it, it, nothing's straightforward, and uh, but you generally what I like to say is we we try to plan, we try to plan, and then when it all falls apart, at least we started from something. Yeah. You know, but uh, I, this was this was on this film in particular, it was great because we we Tim really did have a great vision of it, and um, and he was really collaborative, so it gave uh, myself as and a lot of us the opportunity to to be artistic and design and um, be involved in that creative process, which is. What I personally love the most about the job, so that was really great. And then working with all the um, various facilities, they were uh, we we really we got lucky. Everybody, when when we started uh, sending out bids for this movie, everybody was so jazzed about it and just was dying to be on this movie, which is a nice thing to happen when you're when you're working on one. I've, I've been on the other side of that, and uh, um, so so it was pretty cool because no matter what piece people got, because sometimes you're a little apologetic because everybody wants to do all this big work. And you're like, well, we just have this one part. We want you to do that. And, and, and whoever it was or whatever facility was like, oh, we're so psyched about that part. And, uh, and they were. They were. And they really kind of took it to heart. And each piece that every facility did, they, they, they made it their own. And they really wanted to make it the best part of the movie, which you know is, is awesome because it only makes the whole look that much better. Um, so it was great, it really was, and, uh, um, and I, I, I honestly just had an amazing experience working with, with all the various facilities and, and each of them, and we, we also had to do a lot of, because um, Deadpool was a rather tight budgeted film, and, and uh, we had to do a lot of crossover of uh, what we call assets or the characters or the objects or an environment or whatever uh, between the facilities, and they don't always do that well. And, uh, but everybody was, was great on the show and really passed things back and forth and, and not only passed an, an asset back and forth, but went as far as to get on the line and teach the other facility how to use the asset that they were providing for them, which I I'd never seen before. Um, so that, it, it was really cool and it, it just made it a, a full collaborative process that everybody was into and just truly wanted to make the best movie that
0: it could be. Cool. I That's think you great. accomplished that. Yeah, Definitely. We did all right. Yeah, I think it was nice. <laughs> um, for you, Matt, <clears throat> just speaking to editors and, and other post-production, the questions like, how many reels was the film broken down into? Was it one timeline? Like I've done films where it's one timeline. Like we, how, so how did you break six it Six
1: reels. We broke it down six reels. We tried keeping around 20 minutes you know, per reel and whatnot, and then it, it obviously at, at decent points or decent breaks and whatnot in the film, uh, so like reel one, for example, obviously the beginning all the way up to uh, the end of the bar scene and then reel two beginning picking up uh you gotta find where a natural the break. ski ball exactly yeah. yeah you don't you you try and go where you don't have music dissolves but now it's you've got music crossing every single scene now so it makes it a little bit more complicated. But generally speaking you stick around 20 minute reels.
0: And that yeah find that I find I'm on a film right now and um, I'm shooting it it's being shot in 6K I'm editing it in 6K and I'm trying to find the limits of the premiere like to see where it starts getting sluggish and stuff. So it's nice to be able to to find those those points that really hurt and then back off so you know those limits. Uh, how many assets? Because this is important. Like how many assets were in a reel? Do you know roughly? Because there's so many. Offhand, I actually yeah.
1: don't know. Okay. Um, I think total of what we had at the end of the show, what we found out was it was about five hundred thousand. So it was five hundred thousand
0: it separate items. Between sound effects, music,
1: sure, sure. dailies, render files. Yeah. That sounds like so it was a lot. Of, it was a lot of stuff.
0: <laughs> and what was the storage? What storage did you guys uh, use? For so it, for we used
1: things. open drives. Um, so it was it was a base uh, 185 terabytes of solid state drive and then we were connected by 185 by a, yo 185 yep. so and then
2: but we had to add more we had to
1: add more at the end so, yep
0: yeah. Does so. that fall on you? you? have to okay that yeah. you have to to, we need more yeah. we need more
2: we just we can't, can't we, ha, we need more space
1: yep and then connected go. by 10 gig fiber okay so yeah, so uh, trying to keep it as quick as fast as possible.
0: And there were five edit bays, and you went to the sixth, I believe. Yep, we went
1: to a six at one point. At yeah, one point, just so, so. export and and do you know other other random stuff.
0: But that's yeah, that's some of the technical stuff that's mm-hmm. really important. What was the uh, technically the most difficult scene for Julian as his first assistant? What did he have? Not the most trouble with, but what demanded the most as an editor and story-wise?
1: Yeah, I'd probably go with the big fight at the end. You know, the 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 fight scene between Deadpool, Ajax, Colossus, NTW, uh, not just because of of any given reason, but with the complexity you had full CGI characters, you know, green screen, full CGI shots, and then you're you're intercutting all these different fight scenarios, you know, which you need to be able to get the pace, the comedy, and the the tempo right while telling the story. (laughs) Um, I think they did a great job on it. You know, in in the end. it was still something fun, and it didn't effective. last too long. Right, I mean, right. It was a 20-minute scene that didn't feel too long, didn't right. feel too short, and, and told what they needed to do. Right.
0: And same question for you, Jonathan. Did you have a certain scene or a certain shot that just really broke your balls that you just couldn't wrap your brain around? Balls, well, um, wrap no, it. I mean, the, the different shots were problematic or hard for different
3: reasons. I mean, the, the opening credits mm-hmm. were particularly complicated, just because oh. it was immensely long. And uh, uh, for anybody who's ever dealt with credits, they're always a dicey business because there's a lot of people who have a lot to say about them. <laughs> so uh, so they, they, they tend to be the last thing to get done. The, had done. Um, credits, uh, so we had to up-res all the files that, and this is something that Blur had done. They did those credits, Tim's company. So we had to up all the files that they had been given from another company, Atomic Fiction, who did all the freeway um, uh, work. And then they, and then after uprising, then we had to um, work on getting their, the look dev done for them to be something high res and then just rendering that. They, they pretty much shut Blur down for a week just to render that thing once. I mean, it was over the holidays and nobody was allowed to come in and all that thing did was render in every computer in their facility for a week. Wow. Yeah, um, yeah that was a tough one. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't one where you just wanna be like, no, let's just change this little thing um, after the fact. <laughs> So, um, so that was a tough one. Um, and then, you know, the, the, one of the ones that I, oddly enough, there's always ones where you, that get difficult that you don't um, think that it necessarily will be, not that it was an easy sequence, but the, uh, when the ship starts to list, and we shot it on a, on a huge gimbal, 30 feet in the air, of them fighting on the, on the angled deck there, but uh, it, and we were hoping to use some of that live action um, footage—not the footage, but the, the at least the deck—to yeah. help work, and, and, and it just really didn't play. So we ended up that, that becomes an entire CG environment around there, which wow. um, you know it, it's tricky when because we ended up shooting everything outside in these uh, crazy lighting setups that uh, Ken Sang came up with. Um, so so yeah, matching that lighting and trying to get that to work—an entire CG environment that had a whole world around it. Um, that was that definitely became a, a lot of uh, complicated. Uh, positioning and decisions, and how to set up our set on a, on a shot per shot basis, and make sure then after you did, they might look good for one shot, but then you, it wouldn't cut against the next shot. So we had to do a, a lot to make sure that not only did it work on the shot alone, but then when we went through the cut, and, and uh, that they would match together, and then occasionally the cut would change. And so we would the cut do
1: it all changes, over again. That's yeah. shocking. I've never heard of it changing. Um, how
0: many times you lock the film? Oh,
1: God. Uh, what? It, <laughs> I mean, that that worked never to the, came the last day. Up. <laughs> I mean Because as you're getting. VFX shots in, you know, such as exactly what he's talking about—the the huge ship collapsing—you want to roll that out as much as you possibly can. So until the very end, that, that it was changing.
3: Yeah, so, there's yeah. definitely shots that you see in uh, either previs or, or or early animation stage that looks cool, but it's not, you know, oh my god, this is amazing. And then after we finally get it all rendered out and put all the details in it and all the love, um, everybody realizes it's just super cool, and all of a sudden yeah. they want to extend that cut and yeah. add oh, a little right. more in.
0: So you're yeah. really good at your job then, and you're just giving them more, and you like, <laughs> yeah, yeah <okay. laughs> it's a good quality to have. To start screwing that up, Yeah, yeah. it I, I don't know how I screw that <laughs> yeah. up. On that note, can we play the third clip, please, of the VFX before and after? Again, no video recording, please. This will be up soon, and uh, enjoy. It's beautiful. A lot of hard work done by everyone. And could you kill the stage lights, please, just so, we
3: see. so this, this was actually one of our hardest lighting environments, in that we were on the viaduct up in Vancouver, And uh, if you've been to Vancouver, you notice you get every lighting scenario possible in a single day, um, from sunny to cloudy to rainy. And so we had to do an awful lot of uh, both, we we changed the background so it didn't look like Vancouver, but also we pretty much had to relight the background in every shot and in some of the plates just so that we could make sure that everything lined up visually. Um, and then we did a lot of mix between CG and, and live-action characters and doubles. And yeah, the motorcycle flipping guy was was digital. We we would look at fiti- footage of motorcycle races and that's all and like that. Yeah, Jesus, a lot of the background. This again, we you saw we shot on the actual viaduct and then replaced the background there uh, with just what was our pre-post apocalyptic Detroit, whatever that is. <laughs> um, but. Uh, uh, yeah, so we, we did a lot of shooting out there, and um, and then again we came up with our digital environment, and we we mapped out an entire city of how he would do, they would travel when they get in the car fight, and kind of worked out what each area would look from being more dense or, or less populated, and uh, and and ultimately ending up on the the overpass there, so that we it it, it, it looked like a, a realistic environment that it. You, know, you can make it look as real as you want, but if it's, if it's an environment that could never be or, or didn't make any sense, then people wouldn't buy it anyway. So we, we put a lot of effort into making sure that, that the entire path of the, uh, of the fight was um, in a believable space and moved through a, what would be a real city. Uh, and then as far as, as, as the car sequence itself, basically everything that happens outside that vehicle is digital. Um, there's, there's, there's no point in it where you're actually on a real environment. We, we did go out to Detroit and shoot some background plates that were uh, referenced and we used for some of the other car shots, but in the end for the sequence it just, it made sense that we had to recreate everything to make it work. Uh, and this was again the, the shot that uh, Atomic did that in, in the car sequence that then we turned over to blur that they had to up res for the title sequence. Uh, this one was, uh, these are uh, two shots together that Tim just was dying to have in the movie, and wasn't in the movie, and wasn't in the movie, and wasn't in the movie. And, the movie. and as we were going, we kind of figured we figured out we're like we went to Tim we're like Tim, I, we we figured out a way to get that money. We we want we can we can get those shots in the movie, and uh, and he was psyched. And, and Digital Domain, who did the Colossus work, just really wanted to do it. So we were all working on a way to figure it out. Uh, Colossus is a, an extremely complicated character. In that he's all metal, but he ha- has to—the skin has to look like it's uh, moving. His line. I'm going to jump off classes just because oh. we're here. But this is the work Weta did, where we had to animate um, all of uh, Deadpool's facial expression, and, and we didn't want to make him metal. CG because we didn't want to replace the head in all the shots. So that's we came up with a pipeline where um, we would track sure his head. Uh, we had a 3D. Uh, but but you as far as animation did, we had done some tests where they'd just been moving splines and and One trying to thing stretch thing in, in his face and it just like didn't look good. So we did 3D animation on a rig, on. which then would get um, re-projected back onto his face so we like didn't like actually have to render, song render song song out. anything loud. Um, and that Restrated. way we could Hold use real like animators to animate his, his face. And um, Ooh, and then, of course, the DVD will be out.
0: Well, Nice. Thank you. So, yeah, um, so thank you for talking through that. Sure. So I didn't have to, since <laughs> you know all those shots, thank God. That looks insane, like I didn't see that until like yesterday and I can't imagine how difficult that is. Like, how big is your team? Just real fast and when we'll wrap it up, I'd like to open it up to Q&A, but how many people were on the team doing the effects, for example? Well,
3: my internal crew was uh, myself, um, we had four coordinators and a uh, PA and my producer. Mm-hmm. And then we managed uh, 10 facilities and an in-house group. Which amounts to hundreds and hundreds of artists and support team and supervisors and wow. everything else. I didn't have to deal with all of them. <laughs> I just dealt with the supervisors of each of the facilities. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's visual effects is an artist job and it takes artists to do it. And there's a lot of them to get it done. And you know, and then it's it it, it just it's also about seeing the details of the world you're building mm-hmm. so that you pay attention. And um, you know, I quite often my wife is just. I'm crazy because I'll sit in a, a room and look at a glass and just start staring at the reflections and do it for five, ten minutes. And she's like, "What's wrong with you?" And you know, you're just you're just <laughs> studying it, trying Reference to figure out what it right. does. You know, so <laughs> so yeah, um, so yeah you, it's it's really a job about seeing the details and trying to recreate those details because that's that's really what
0: makes things come alive. That's awesome. Thank you. Know. you. Um, can we get some? Do we have mics? Or I can't see. So if we want to pass them to anyone, if anyone wants to line up, we can answer questions. I don't know how long we can run, but. 15 minutes? OK, okay, great. So if, if anyone has questions, we can start there. Come on up and just shout, shout out in the middle here. Do I shout out already? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Good. Um, so the
1: DVD is coming out May 10th? May 10th, yeah. OK, <laughs> just, if you uh, haven't heard. I, if but... you haven't heard,
0: it's May 10th for the DVDs and Blu-rays. So I had more of a question about um,
3: why you would pick one uh, editing program over another who mandates
1: that and why uh, what are the benefits and uh, of course we've heard some of the downsides you know just people crossing over and learning a new system and then there's uh, folks like yourself that can facilitate that process a lot better but why would uh, why would you choose one program over another uh, so yeah who mandates say that and why yeah you
0: know, I can answer for myself like I think it's just being comfortable with the system and and the pluses and minuses like To be honest, an editor should be able to cut on anything. I've cut features on Avid, on Final Cut 7, and Premiere Pro. It's not an issue. There's literally six tasks that I do all day long, either in, out, insert something, or delete something, or adjust a a trim. Everything else is just a functionality that's under the hood that should work, and it should be invisible. So it's not a question of why you choose one or the other. I think it's a question of, on this show, we initially were were trying to actually cut at a higher res, and it was was built for that. It was built to, to, to make that happen. And then we were concerned, there were so many other things on the table at that point in terms of what could go wrong or what couldn't go wrong. Joan was not even nervous. We were just telling her, this, this is what could happen. And as far as I know, we had no showstoppers in, in terms of this. Nothing that made production, sorry, post-production stop like for a half day or an hour or a day. And that's the most critical thing you should think about. Like, if there's a showstopper, you're screwed. Like, everything falls apart. You're going to be on the horn with so many people. So if you don't have a showstopper, you can move forward the editors and the the post-production team is happy and moving forward, then that's great. A lot of the editors had already been on After Effects. The interface between After Effects and Premiere Pro is very similar in terms of how you make um, manipulations, how you make adjustments. So that was an extra cool part of the learning curve that they were like, oh, it's not as difficult as I thought it would be. And so gaining their trust and comfort level um, all things being equal, again, you, you just choose what, what's comfortable and you know, move forward from that. So I, I don't know if that answers it, but please. Can can I, I know yeah. I'm
3: not an editorial, no. but uh, I just was around during the, some of the conversations and that early on t- Tim, the director, Tim's, he has his own visual effects company and he, uh, he's always trying to, he's always done, he's done it there and certainly on our show, he was always trying to push the envelope as far as trying something new and he loves to do things that people say he can't do. So, uh, so he really, he was, at, at any chance, he was definitely trying to make an opportunity where he could um, utilize some, a tool that he thought might be better or more effective or more cost-effective. Um, or For him, the biggest thing was efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and, then, and, and he didn't care if people hadn't done it before or hadn't tried it before. He, he wanted to push that envelope, mm-hmm. for sure.
1: All right, thank you guys. Uh just wanted to say as well, all of your projects
0: past and present
1: amazing stuff. So thank you. Oh, thanks.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the comment. Um next uh hey, I've two two
3: questions. I'm sorry. I'll keep them short. The first one is uh how do you keep how do you get the VFX to be so lyrical? How like to have a groove to them? Um that's one of the things I really felt about Deadpool was it just sort of like it sings. It's it's got a rhythm to it. And could you speak a little bit about how you make that happen? Um you know, I've always, I've always considered myself and an you have different types of visual effects supervisors, at least for my part of how it worked, um, and I've always considered myself more of a, an artistic visual effects supervisor rather than a technology-based visual effects supervisor. Um, so, uh, it, was, it was really important for me to uh, take on the personality of the film in the visual effects that we did. Uh, one of my favorite scenes that you, you don't see that much from a visual effects standpoint or, or showcase uh, is actually the firefight scene in there uh, because it's 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 really the the one sequence that I, I actually see as a violent part of the movie um, everything else the violence is kind of followed and surrounded by humor and it's it's you know it's over the top but that that was a really violent part of the movie and, um, and a very serious part of the movie coming uh, off of what is probably the darkest most serious part of the film and so while they were in their fight it was really important to us and talking about it with Tim that, that it actually is to me one of the more beautiful scenes in the movie like we really wanted we really wanted to have it the the amber glow and, and see flares and, and, and have depth of field and have embers going through and so um, so we kind of had that approach to most of the movie in in terms of how how, how to see each scene and see um, what we could do to make it match or um, or at least support what was going on in, in any one thing you know when it, when it's kind of crazy and frenetic. Uh, we really wanted to just let that happen, and we, we didn't want to we didn't want to battle that. We definitely don't do visual effects for the sake of seeing them, you know. They should just disappear into the scene. Uh, so that was that was a big part of how we went about it. Uh, the second part was just I saw the panel at Sundance about this film, and they were talking about the Cohn Brothers workflow with the paddle, and it's all about like I'm. It's again, it's a question about rhythm and timing, and how you guys get that to feel natural. Um, on a technical side, is what are, for example, three things you ask or two things you ask for Adobe, specifically as features that, what do you say to them, like, we want this kind of thing that have made it a better program?
1: Um, I guess I'll go on, you know, for one of the requests that we had gotten was just making a subsequence. You know, in the beginning with the complexity of the timelines, one of the things that we really wanted was to be able to go ahead and just give the editor the ability to go ahead and say, you know, I want to put an in and out in the middle of this reel and just work on this little section. So he'd be able to create a subsequence, and that was something that they were able to go ahead and, and, and get that to us. Um, another one, which you know, I know that they're still working on, is being able to have just one project. Being able to, you know, like what you would do in a different editing system like Avid, being able to give all five, you know, editors or, or assistants, and whatnot, not, the ability to be able to go ahead and share just that one project, so you don't have to keep opening and closing projects and, and moving things around. It you know makes everything much more organized and, and simpler. Um, another. Uh, Let's see, another one that we've done, it's been so long since I've looked at that list. <laughs> um, uh, a trim function, just being able to go ahead and, and you know, have a, a shortcut in the, in, the, in the keyboard essentially, be able to go ahead and trim what we were used to like in, in Avid, being able to go ahead and get something like that similar. So it's, you know, it just depends on like what the editor's request is or anything that would make the process much simpler and easier for you. So it would come up and, and do those. Thanks guys. Thanks. Uh, hi. I was just uh, wondering, because you mentioned that during the bar scene, there was a lot of great improv between like Ryan and TJ. Uh, did you find that Deadpool always wearing a mask would give you opportunities in cutting to try out like different, funnier lines of dialogue like, no. at any point? Go, going into it, we thought, that we, you know, going in, we were basically like, well, this is going to be great. He's wearing a mask. We can ADR the entire thing. We can make it and do whatever we want. And then... When we came up with the idea of going ahead and animating his mask, we realized that every time we change a line, we need to reanimate his mask. Uh, right. we, we screwed so. that up. <laughs> it, what we thought was going to be easy turned into a nightmare towards <laughs> the end. So, by the, way, <laughs> yeah. by the way, I will
2: add that it also adds so much flexibility that the writers and the producers and yeah. the directors in the studio let's just change a line, let's oh, just bring never Ryan back, on a show to so or, uh, we did a lot of ADR. It,
1: it made for good ADR yeah. sessions.
3: Right,
2: yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a blessing and a curse. We thought, ah, oh, this is the best, and then the reality came in, and it was like, this is the worst. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and weren't you also getting, uh, some of the actors, weren't they sending in from the iPhone, like, I have an idea. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So they're like literally just emailing we, P3s or whatever from the phone. We
1: gave Ryan a, a little tiny, attachable mic to his iPhone, and We'd just get emails randomly of, you know, <laughs> lines and stuff. i try this here, try that there. And so, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> it, was, awesome. it
0: was 24-7. <laughs> Thank you, technology. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. Good question.
1: Hi, really quick question. Um, I was just wondering if you used any external or supplemental programs or plugins to to uh, kind of communicate amongst each other or to accomplish anything in Adobe that you couldn't do um, currently, so.
0: Netflix, do you want to talk about ChangeList?
1: We went ahead, you know, one of the things that we needed for, uh, for sound and music turnovers, we needed uh, change lists. Uh, we needed everything to be formatted a certain way so, you know, when we would do a turnover, that they can go ahead and, and conform all their automation on the mix stages to whatever the newest reel is. So we went ahead and utilized a third-party software called ChangeList 7 um, because Premiere doesn't have that. So essentially we would go ahead and, and you know, you'd flatten your, your reel timeline and you'd export a, uh, a text file and then you would put those into your changelist 7 so that way it could basically spit out what all the changes are, where they are, how many feet they are, um, and then the sound, the sound guys will be able to go ahead and re-automate all of their mixing steps on the stage so it makes it a little bit quicker and, and
0: efficient. So, yeah. Thank you. Uh, we've got time for one last question if anyone wants to chime in or chip in. in the I'm yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, okay. I was
2: was
3: taking a knee because I'm a little tall and I don't want (laughs) to block these guys. Okay, well, my question is, how do you decide what to do out, did you try to keep as much as you could inside of Adobe, or did you, um, for example, like the smoke in the scene, one of the scenes that you showed, do you try to do as much of that as you can in After Effects, or or was there just some things you just decided to go in outside um, software?
1: Company. I mean, for, for temps and stuff where, you know, if it was something that the editor and director wanted to see really quickly just to temp out, you know, we had uh, uh, effects that they went ahead and, and uh, shot, just smoke, you know, shots and whatnot, that we could then go ahead and implement that onto a shot. But for the final feature, we would we would kick it out to these guys and then they would go ahead, the vendors would actually work on that
0: smoke and whatnot in order but to so get So for timing, you would do it in mm-hmm. you know, in your own timeline and see how it plays. Timing, and it placement, mm-hmm,
3: yeah. you know, all that
0: kind of stuff. Because frames don't matter, right? When they send how long a shot you need, right? That yeah, yeah. yeah, that it's means like, nothing. For 12 frames, whatever. Yeah, just. It's, just, it's just 12 more frames. Yeah, just 12.
3: So, okay. what's some examples, or what's an example of something that you would keep inside of um, just doing in After Effects? Or and then, what's an example of something that, I mean, obviously, like CGI was done outside, but what's, what's just an example of like something really? that you would something keep inside I think, of just
0: Adobe? Yeah, no, I think. Are you asking like, I think what Matt's saying is like a lot of the temp stuff was done in After Effects. It's also mm-hmm. replaced later by other software because that's not oh, okay. the editor's job to make a finalized. You know, VFX shot, but to give the best representation of what it should look like, and what it should feel like, so Jonathan can control that and decide what it should look like and you know, feel. So and they, they did tons of
3: that, especially Neil, mm-hmm. was yeah. constantly. Yeah. Any green screen it,
1: removal yeah. that we needed to do, you know, we would key that out either in Premiere or in, fa- in After Effects. Um, but ultimately, no matter flash, what, to finish the actual. Uh, the finished project, they would have to go out to the vendors. But yeah, no, it's uh, bullet hits, squib hits, stuff like that, you know, where we would go ahead and, and see that throughout. We'd be able to go ahead and tempt that in Premiere or in After Effects, just as, as a quick shot that we can go ahead and show the director and editor.
2: Okay,
0: thank you. Okay, thank you. And thank you, for everyone, for your patience and for taking the time. I know was a huge line out there, so we all thank you. So from Matt, Joan, Jonathan, thank you very much.